Thanks for seeing me. <clears throat> Conrad, let's have a great Christmas. Okay? Let's have a great year. Let's have the best year of our whole lives, okay? We can, you know. This could be the best year ever. Yeah. Hello and welcome to 80s Movie Montage. This is Derek. And this is Anna. And for probably the first time in our podcast, I'm going to give people just a little heads up before we even dive into this week's movie, which is Ordinary People. Mm -hmm. Just to say that while we talk about a lot around this movie, there is conversation around the topics of self-harm and suicide. So if that is something that very understandably you may not want to follow along with for this particular episode, we get it, but we just wanted to give you a heads up before we kick things off. Yeah, it's it's a heavy movie. It mm -hmm. is much heavier than a lot of the movies that we discuss, and the scene that that we introed right at the top is you know, in retrospect, a very difficult scene when you realize what happens to Karen at the mm -hmm. end of the movie. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, Ordinary People, uh, 1980. Mm -hmm. So, right at the top of the decade. And. Just made it. Couldn't have been a 1979 <laughs> film, could it? So, the very first Best Picture winner that we have discussed on the podcast. Really? Yes. I thought for sure Transformers the movie got it for something, but... <laughs> I know we were, like, debating that, I think, at the tail end of the last episode, and I don't know why I was, like, so uncertain. Like, it's pretty obvious that this is the first time we've ever covered a Best Picture winner. Yeah. I mean, maybe others will come up. Maybe at some point we'll talk about, like, Driving Miss Daisy <laughs> or something like that, but... Well, didn't we... We have covered the movie that lost to this uh, for Best Picture, didn't we? Which was what? Which one are you? Uh, raging. Of? I'm, I was thinking of Raging Bull. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 We've talked about others that were in contention. I mean, we've even covered like, runner-ups. Even like Raiders. Yeah. So, um, so we've we've talked about runner-ups, but yeah, you're absolutely right. But this is the first winner, and it got a lot of Oscar love. I mean, I'll go through them individually, but it did win four. So, best picture, of course, it did win best director mm. as well. Best Supporting Actor for one of the two actors that was up for that nomination, uh, as well as Best Adapted Screenplay. So, hmm. And then it got um, another nomination for Best Actress. So, all right. This does happen to be – has it been a while? I'm trying to think. Well, no. It hasn't been a while at all because we just talked about Stand By Me. Uh, this is an adaptation from a novel. So the novelist for that, Judith Guest, and I mean, she has one other credit, like IMDb credit, which doesn't speak at all to like the breadth of her career. It's just other things that she wrote don't necessarily qualify. Okay. That other credit is for a film not familiar with it. It's called Rachel River. I am not familiar with that film. This much I do know that the novel and then the subsequent adaptation were so popular that people did want her to do a sequel, but I don't believe she ever did. Um, she wasn't interested in coming back to this story. I mean, 
obviously like the characters stories are not done but the story of like this moment in their lives yeah is done yeah so i think you could only like detract from the impact of this movie by having like a sequel Mm -hmm. so i mean i think i'd be curious to know you know what becomes of conrad and the marriage between Kelvin and Beth, like those are all questions that I do have. Yeah. But I think that it's okay that they remain questions and that we didn't get any kind of clarity on that. Yeah. And- no, it, it's not only is it okay, I feel like that is like the actual intent is to mm-hmm. like think about like how different their lives could have been if these things hadn't happened and think about like where their lives may go now that they're like these changes have happened in their family. Yeah. Like there aren't. Yeah, a sequel would have been, it it would have kind of cheapened the impact of this one. Yeah, I agree. So she is credited for the novel. However, the one it's kind of an interesting little dynamic here. There's only one person who is credited for the screenplay. Which one? Best adapted screenplay, Alvin Sargent. And now he is a gentleman that had an incredible career. He's no longer with us. Um, started in television, did a lot of TV work early in his career. He wrote on Naked City, Route 66, hmm. The Doctors and the Nurses. So he gets his first Oscar nomination, um, again, for Best Adapted Screenplay for Paper Moon. Oh. Great movie. Great, great, great movie. He gets a couple more. He must have, I'm guessing, a little bit of a, like, or had a professional relationship with Barbara Streisand because he has uncredited credits for both The Way We Were as well as The Star Was Born. Hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. He gets his first Oscar win for the film Julia. Oh, so this was his second Mm -hmm. Oscar win? Wow. Mm -hmm. That's a good few years. Yeah, exactly. And then it's just really interesting, the trajectory of his career. So... He's the credited screenwriter on Nuts. That's another Streisand film. But he does What About Bob? So he's got some range. Mm-hmm. Although does... technically still kind of about mental health. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Um, so What About Bob? Hero. Like he really is kind of all over. And I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, but all over the place. So he goes from hero to anywhere but here. Mm-hmm. Then he does Unfaithful. And then he is the screenwriter on the second, which I think is the best out of the original trilogy, the Spider-Man, the Tobey Maguire trilogy. Okay. So he is the screenwriter on two. He's also the screenwriter on three. Well, two, I would agree, is possibly the best in the entire, like, out of any Spider-Man movie, it's second in my mind only to, is it No Way Home? Oh, yeah. I The multiverse Spider-Man? The, the latest one. Yeah. And yeah. second only to that because that has... Because it has everybody. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's so interesting that the same person who wrote Ordinary People wrote these, like, huge, huge, you know, superhero movies. And then he also is the credited screenwriter on The Amazing Spider-Man. So the first of the Andrew Garfield. Yeah. That was still good, too. That just... Um, people had Spider-Man fatigue. So what what I was alluding to earlier is that there is an uncredited credit for another screenwriter on oh. this film. Her name is Nancy Dowd, and she, in her own right, had, like, she she's still with us, but I don't think she's, like, writing um, anymore, at least anything that has 
gotten picked up on imdb okay she's the screenwriter for Slapshot, which i love that movie you you really do love that movie i love that movie it's one of the few like sports comedy movies where you're like a way bigger fan of it than i am i'm like yeah it's fine <laughs> uh she got her own oscar win for best original screenplay for coming home hmm. uh and then this is what i think is really interesting so she has two other credits however she uses pseudonyms male pseudonyms for well. the films. So she is credited as Rob Morton for Swing Shift and Ernest Morton for Let It Ride. That's that's really sad. Yeah. Because I think the implication there yes. is that she needed to do that to like get that so that's why I'm kind of yeah. curious what the dynamic is. I didn't go down the rabbit hole. Of, I, I tried a little bit, actually. I tried a little bit to figure out, like, why doesn't she have a credit on this? How, like, involved was she? I'd like to know why she is a uncredited, credited writer for Cloak and Dagger, a movie that we will certainly cover at some point. Oh, I didn't have that one. So, yeah, interesting. I mean, I do think that the screenplay warrants the Oscar attention, and it is not at all to take away from Sargent. And maybe he did do, you know, the majority of the heavy lifting and it was all kosher that he was the only credited screener. I don't know. Sure. But, okay. so moving- That's what we're here for. We're here to, to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> so director, familiar name. However, I don't think we've really brought him up for any of our previous films so far. However, Robert Redford. Mm, that guy. So first time he directed, this was his out (laughs) out the gate. (laughs) So his first, his directorial debut was Best Picture. Mm -hmm. And Best Director. Cool, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yep. I mean, of course, at this point, I'm not going to go down uh, all of his acting credits because that's not what his uh, role was on this film. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not going to do that. But, of course, at this point, he was incredibly well-known, incredibly famous, and decided to try his hand at directing. And All the, the movies he's directed are really good. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, he's a pretty good director. Now, previous to this, he did already get some Oscar attention. He had a Best, Act, Best Actor Oscar nomination for The Sting. Yeah, the movie's so, amazing. I mm-hmm. love that movie. And now to get back to his directing work. So as mentioned, this was his first uh, directing credit. But then other films that he has done subsequently, The Milagro, Beanfield War, A River Runs Through It. That film is similarly really heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. It is heartbreaking. But if I'm going to be totally honest, I don't know why. But I cannot separate in my mind A River Runs Through It and Legends of the Fall. (laughs) I don't know why. Well, I mean, it's funny because... Uh, so in my mind, okay, it's... Okay, so both Brad Pitt. The full sure, title sure. would be A River Runs Through the Legends of the Fallet. Oh, my goodness. And it's one movie. I think a lot of people... What's funny about A River Runs Through it is I think at that point in time, a lot of people looked at Brad Pitt as like a younger version of Robert Redford. They both have that like, mm. you know, blonde locks, pretty face. Like, I think that there was a lot of comparisons made at that point in time. They were both in a Spy Game. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've probably been in other things as well. But yeah. I remember. So, them. Yeah. I mean, between the two films, you know, they both uh, focus very heavily on fraternal relationships. So, 
like Craig Schiffer and Brad Pitt in A River Runs Through It. And then... It's just like the uh, Fast franchise. It's just all about family. Okay. So moving on, he also directs Quiz Show, for which he gets a Best Director nomination. And he produced on that. So he also got a Best Picture Oscar nomination. He directs The Horse Whisperer, The Legend of Bagger Vance, Lions for Lambs, and The Conspirator. Hmm. So, okay, moving on to cinematography, gentleman by the name of John Bailey, and he has some some pretty big credits to his name. Oh. Oh. So very early in his career, he shoots American Gigolo. Hmm. So he does that, Without a Trace, The Big Chill, Silverado, Brighton Beach Memoirs. What year was Silverado made? It hmm. it can qualify. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty all sure. right, all right. I put this one in just because it's a little, I don't know, running joke is a little of a strong statement, but he shot vibes. Man. <sighs> Heavy sigh. I have a memory of seeing that movie in the movie theater and really enjoying it. You and, do? Yeah. I don't know if I remember you telling me that. That's why I put it on uh, like, probably on Amazon or something. I just put it on, and I couldn't make it through the first five minutes. It was... I was right there with you, and I, yeah. I also similarly could not make it through the first five minutes. Yeah, no. I, oof, oof. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> so he also shoots The Accidental Tourist, My Blue Heaven, Groundhog Day, In the Line of Fire. So a lot of huge films. In the Line of Fire... Nobody's Fool. Hmm. I do really like this movie quite a bit. As good as it gets. Yeah, it's it's a really good movie. It's a really yeah. good movie. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and then more recently, The Way, Way Back. Hmm. Yeah. So. I remember The Way, Way Back with Steve Carell. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've watched that too. Yeah. Don't remember a lot of it, but I think I did watch it. Yeah, we watched it together after Vibes. After we watched Vibes, we watched The Way Back. Back back to back? Yep. Okay. So so this is normally the part of the podcast where I bring up the composer on a film, and there is no credited composer on this film. I thought that was really interesting because now we – I I think it comes up in conversation with our special guest, returning four-time guest, Jeff York. Coming soon. Coming soon. Uh, later on in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that Pachelbel's Canon is featured prominently. Pachelbel's Canon. Why do you laugh? Because I had, I'd heard the song, but as, as we will talk about with Jeff, I didn't know that was the name of it. So the first time you kept saying Pachelbel's Canon, I had you repeat it probably like 10 times because <laughs> I'm like... Are you speaking another language? I don't understand the this like sequence of sounds. Pachelbel's Canon. What is that? What is that? But yes, it is featured prominently in this movie. So much so that like people have said that it led to its like resurgence in popularity. Renaissance. Which if you will. it's I mean, I think what's so interesting about that is that the music is attached to a film that has like really somber overtones to it. I mean, the subject matter couldn't be, like, more serious and heavy. Correct. Yeah. But the music has gone on to become something really intertwined with weddings in particular. Like, very happy occasions. So it's just interesting how that's crossed over. I mean, I I don't know what the sense was at the time, but 
was that or could that have been intentional just to create this contrast between what you would assume this family would would be because yeah. they it's like this affluent family yeah. they have ostensibly they have it made possibly yeah and then you dive into their lives and you realize just how fragile everything can be yeah possibly i mean the reason why i bring this up is because i was like huh no composer cuz there are sequences in the film where there's some kind of score that is being overlaid on what we are looking at. Despite the amount of time we spent talking about it, there is more than just yeah. Buckabell's canon. Yeah, there yeah. is. And so when I was going through the credits to be like, what's going on here? Why would there not be a credited composer? Like some kind of music was created for the film. Yeah. There's a gentleman who is incredibly famous, Marvin Hamlish, who worked on the film and he is a huge composer, was a huge composer. I don't I don't know. I don't know what what happened there, like what conversation, if any, occurred between like him and Redford in terms of like what his involvement would be in the way that he would be acknowledged for the film. Um it's like not I composer. think I think it's like a ranger. I think something like that. I think because he probably was he did I think he did his own take on the canon. Okay. Um and maybe was uh had a lot of say as to like the moments in the film where it would be used. Mm. But yeah, he doesn't technically though have a composing credit. However, I did want to, you know, acknowledge him and acknowledge the work that he's done because when I say that he was a very successful composer, like it's very true. So like earlier earlier in his career, he worked on bananas. He gets his so a lot of Oscar love for this guy. He gets his first nomination, best original song for the film. Koch. Okay. So, and I think he also maybe, maybe had a little bit of a relationship with like Barbara Streisand because there are a lot of, there like, I don't want to say there's a lot of people with relationships with Barbara Streisand, but there's at least two. And the fact that there's two is two more than I expected. Yeah, even Robert Redford, like the way we were. It's funny. Um, And this is not a Barbara Streisand movie, but she's coming up a lot. Uh, He gets... Back to back, he gets best original song and best original score for The Way We Were. Hmm. So he worked on that. He gets best, uh, I just wanted to bring this up. He gets best original song score. So I don't exactly, like they keep, I swear every year they like kind of change the wording of different categories. That didn't seem to fit with either just best original song or score, but he gets the win for The Sting. Oh, okay. So he worked on that. So, like, him and Redford do do seem to have, like, they worked together previously. Mm -hmm. He gets um, Best Original Song and Score nominations for The Spy Who Loved Me. That is a really fun James Bond movie that I'm sure has not aged well because none of them have. Yeah. Yeah. Problematic. Uh, Best Original Song Oscar nom for Same Time Next Year. A lot of song. I th- maybe more songs than score nominations. Gets another Best Original Song nom for Ice Castles. He works on Starting Over, Seems Like Old Times. He gets another nom, this time for score for Sophie's Choice. So I'm just going to say, ordinary people, the heaviest we're getting. We are not going to Sophie's Choice. I don't think we are. We're not. But fine to give it the uh, credit it's due. Sure. Yeah. Best original song nom for Chorus Line. He works on Three Men and a Baby. He gets another original song nom for Shirley Valentine. He works on The January Man, Frankie and Johnny. And then the last best original song Oscar nomination that he received was for 
yet another Streisand mm. movie, The Mirror has two faces. I did like The January Man with Kevin Klein. Okay. Yeah. Kevin Klein's the best. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to film editing. Interesting. So uh, I'm pretty sure Jeff had brought him up. Another Jeff. This time, Jeff Canoe mm-hmm. is the name of the editor. Not a very long list of credits. So not sure if he just, you know, pivoted his interest into other avenues. But among some of the credits that we have for films he cut, Black Rodeo, Natural Enemies. I had to have this one in there. The Legend of Awesomest Maximus. Heck yeah. I want to watch that one. Yeah. And Counting for Thunder. Hmm. Okay, moving on to the stars of the film, starting with my favorite character in the whole film, Kelvin Jarrett, played by Donald Sutherland. Yeah, he was, like, he was a very real character. Like, you could, it was, all the performances in this movie, we talk about this with Jeff, they were all just, like, shockingly good. Mm -hmm. Like, it was, it was incredible fully agree with you and his character just broke my heart like it broke you could see he was in so much pain over like the things that he felt maybe he couldn't discuss like you could tell that he he's still grieving his son he knows that his marriage isn't great he knows his other kid is struggling and he's just trying to keep it together yeah you know like he's just trying to keep them together and there was definitely like a vulnerability and like almost an innocence to him that just like made my heart ache for him with everything that he was going through but he he was phenomenal in this film i think i think all three of us were in agreement that he should have been nominated for the film as well so he's had a very long and accomplished career. Uh, so earlier, I, I know I've brought this one up a couple of times. He's in the film, Die, Die, My Darling. Mm. I don't know. I know I've brought that one up for, you, some, for some reason. Uh, you have. <laughs> he was in The Dirty Dozen. He was in the film, MASH. That's right. Who did he play? Was he Hawkeye? I think so. Okay. He's in the film, Clute. So this is... I think, I, I don't know really the film, but it is stylized the same way as MASH, Spies. So it has like the little asterisk after each letter. And I did click in to kind of see, well, what's this about? I think they're kind of um, using the popularity of the film MASH and brought him into this as well. I don't, I just don't know anything about the film, but there seems to be some connection okay. between, between them. He's in National Lampoon's Animal House. He's in the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film, I feel like this came up in the last episode too. He's in Max Dugan Returns. Mm, not, uh, I don't know who Max Dugan is, but I'm glad he's back. <laughs> he's in Backdraft, JFK. I mean, talk about range. He goes from JFK to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The film. Yes. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. For which, a quick second, I'm like, wait, what? I like him a lot in that movie. I, I like that movie. I know people love the TV show. I like the movie. All right. Should we? Can we cover it? <laughs> no. I think it's 90 or 91. Well, a anyway. couple, couple years, a few years from now when we start. <laughs> when we start on our next podcast. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what it's going to be called. I don't want to say it because someone would take it. Exactly. Yeah. Got to keep that hush-hush. Uh, he is in Six Degrees of Separation. 
Outbreak. It's funny because he's in both Outbreak and Virus. <laughs> All so right. Both those films. In between them, he's in A Time to Kill. He's in Space Cowboys, Cold Mountain, Horrible Bosses. He was part of the whole Hunger Games franchise. Yes. he His character in um, Space, was it Space Cowboys? Yes. I, what I appreciated about him is that uh, like the concept is all these old guys have to get on the shuttle and go fix something. It's almost as ridiculous as Armageddon, like mm-hmm. the concept. But his eyes are terrible, but he memorized the the board. So oh. when they have him do his like vision check, he just takes his glasses off and repeats it. Got it. Yeah, I thought that was fun as someone who is visually impaired and needs corrective lenses. <laughs> so, yeah, season all the Hunger like Hunger Games, Catching Fire, Mockingjay Part 1 and Part 2. Mm-hmm. He is in the film Ed Ostra. Oh, yeah. 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 With Brad Pitt. Yes. Yep. And then more recently, he has done some TV. Like I, up to this point, it's all film work. But he was in the TV series swimming with sharks but then in addition to like that was like recurring work but he he has done other tv work but i just he did a whole lot of orange juice commercials did he so many so many orange juice commercials yes okay yeah (laughs) so moving on to the woman who plays his wife beth jarrett uh mary tyler moore so first time we have brought her up and she is the person I mentioned best actress Oscar nom. Well, it was her Oscar nom. So she, I mean, she did a phenomenal job in this film. I mean, it, I, I hated her character so much, but that's only because she did such an incredible job of performing. Right. Like playing that role. She, she like nailed it. She absolutely did. And definitely played against uh, public perception of you know what what everybody thought she was like i mean she started in tv probably the two shows i mean they they are iconic status shows she was on the dick van dyke show and then she had her own show the mary tyler moore show mm-hmm. so she was so well known and beloved by the public that to go like from an american america's sweetheart yes. kind of like perception i think yes to someone who instantly throws French toast into the disposal like a maniac. I mean, big risk. (laughs) Big risk for her to do that. Uh, In between those two shows, I mean, she did do film work. So one of the films she was in, Thoroughly Modern Millie. Um, I like this one. What's so bad about feeling good? That's a good question. That's very relevant for this movie. Post the Mary Tyler Moore show, she also had a show just called Mary. And then um, the film Flirting with Disaster. I mean, I do think that she was mostly known for her, you know, amazing TV work. She's no longer with us. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, she, you know, came into the homes of a couple generations of American. Like, people loved her. She was. I mean, it's it's not quite exactly the same but it it gives me like the same or similar energy of like a lucille ball almost oh for sure where yeah like she was that or carol burnett yeah that well known and that important and that's just like that much of a part of like tv we're not of that era but i think unfortunately like like at least we have like our parents and grandparents who 
understood the like importance that she held in they were all reruns when we were watching yeah they were on all the time so even i like know all those shows that she was on i know the shows i didn't watch the shows but i know the shows and it's hard to overestimate just you know what her impact was in that regard i would watch the dick van dyke show just to watch him with that crazy slip and fall thing gag at the beginning every time every time it got me (laughs) So moving on to Judd Hirsch. So he plays Dr. Berger and he is the other gentleman. We are going to obviously come to Timothy Hutton next, but both of them got best supporting actor noms and Hutton won out, which I think it was deserved. However, I adore Judd Hirsch in this role. I like him just generally. I think he's a phenomenal actor and I love him in this film. He is. He's like, he's sneaky good because my first impressions of him were from Taxi. Yeah. So that kind of like colors all the other impressions that I have for better or for worse. But, you know, for something like this, it it like shows you what a like dynamic range he had. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is, I mean, he at the time that we are filming this, he's currently up. For yet another Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination for The Fablemans. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're kind of bookending right now, as of right now, um, his Oscar love. But to go through some of his credits over the course of his career. So you mentioned you mentioned Taxi. Prior to Taxi, he was on a TV show called Del Vecchio. Mm. So there's that. Yes, Taxi, huge, 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 huge uh, show that he was one of the main players on. Even though it was a huge ensemble cast he was definitely one of the more prominent members it's definitely number one if i was going to create a list of comedies with the saddest theme songs oh my gosh it would be number one and two i mean it's kind of amazing to think of like the people that came out of that you know between him tony danza um christopher lloyd danny devito (laughs) yeah Yeah, no it's that cast andy kaufman that cast is insane it's absolutely insane so uh, he, he did TV other, or sorry, film work, I should say. He was in the film Teachers, Running on Empty. So post-Taxi, I think his next big TV show was Dear John. Yes, I remember that show, yeah. So he was on that. Uh, that might be number number three if Taxi takes one and two for the saddest theme song because it's all about like his wife leaving him. It is. Yeah. I don't remember the opening of that show. Yeah, no, but... it was it was like one of those kind of like poppy yet crushingly sad songs. <laughs> uh, so back to film work. Huge, huge film, Independence Day. May have heard of it. May have heard of it. And then like what they did its sequel like 20, 25 years later. That sounds somewhere right. around there because he's also in Resurgence. I don't think it fared as well. Uh, I haven't seen it. I think we were all good with the first one. Yeah, the first one's awesome. By the time the, the second amazing. one. Yeah, he yeah. plays, um, <laughs> what's his name's dad? Uh, yeah. So um, Jeff Goldblum. So mm-hmm. he plays Jeff Goldblum's dad. He's also in the film A Beautiful Mind. And then going back to TV work, he was on the show Numbers, the one that like stylistically has, replaces the E with a three. Numbers. Yeah, Numbers. He, I had, I had to have this one. And it came up, I think, again, just in the... Because I want to say Jerry O'Connell maybe was in it. Sharknado 2, the second one. Oh, uh, maybe. Maybe. So it's he's possible. in it as well. He's in that TV movie. Uh, the TV show Superior Donuts. He also... I didn't know this. He was in the... Because I haven't watched it yet. He's in the film Uncut Gems. Mm, that's cool. I've not yeah. seen it either, but I've heard good things. 
And then, as I mentioned at kind of the top of our conversation about him, currently up for Best Supporting Actor for The Fablemans. Hmm. Okay, moving on to Timothy Hutton. He plays the surviving son in the Jarrett family, Conrad Jarrett or Connie. He does win Best Supporting Actor for this role, very deservedly so. I mean, pretty amazing. I think he's like 2021 when he won. So he was very early in his career. Started out like with actually a lot of like TV movies early in his career. So he does that had uh you know other big names big name films i should say like in the 80s he was in taps he was in the falcon and the snowman then he moves on to films like french kiss i love this movie a lot i feel like it's kind of under the radar beautiful girls oh yeah i knew you were gonna bring that one up because i know that that, yeah yeah i I love that and that is a huge ensemble cast uh, a lot of huge names, and he's great in it. It's He's had an interesting career in terms of where it's gone. I mean, you know, it's hard when you win your first Oscar at 20, you know, like, that is... Where do you go from there? Yeah. So he does Sunshine State. He does a TV show called A Narrow Wolf Mystery. Oh. Don't know it. More film work. Kinsey, Last Holiday, The Good Shepherd. Lately, it seems like he's you know, been focusing mostly on his TV work. So he's been on a couple shows, Leverage, American Crime. This one, you know, very well, because you really enjoyed watching it, The Haunting of Hill House. I did very much. It was, it had one of the greatest twists that I've ever seen in a series like that. So he's in that. Yeah. Uh, Also did How to Get Away with Murder. And then more recently, Almost Family. He was also in a, you know, another um Stephen King novel adaptation The Dark Half. Oh, okay. Yeah. My apologies. I didn't know that. <laughs> no no need to apologize. <laughs> he was in a uh he was another movie that had a absolutely ridiculous name and I I've lost it, so we'll just have to save that for some other day, I suppose. <laughs> it's very sad. So moving on to the gentleman who plays Conrad's swim coach. I mean, such an interesting kind of character in this film. I really like that that actor and and the character too. But like he's in he's been in a lot of stuff lately that we've watched. So M. Emmett Walsh, uh, over the course of his career so far, two hundred and thirty three acting credits. So very busy. And yeah, when you look at his filmography, I mean, he's kind of in everything. <laughs> so he's he yeah yeah. If you're not looking out for him, you'll miss him. But, right. But he's there. He's there. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to get back to the uh, to the other, the final credit for Mr. Hutton, 2010's Multiple Sarcasms. <laughs> I just love that. Okay. Multiple Sarcasms. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. All right. So I'm, I'm, I'm so, so glad. So glad you found that. <laughs> so M. Emmett Walsh, among some of his credits... We have, I mean, some of these films are just huge. He was in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I did this because last time I was just like, oh, fun, and it's not the band. They might be giants. (laughs) He's in that. What's Up, Doc? This one's interesting. I don't know if it's a euphemism. Get to know your rabbit. Oh, I don't know. Serpico? He's in Slapshot. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Airport 77. 
Uh, this film that seems to come up every episode, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> don't know what, why. What year was that made? Is uh, that... 70s, I think. We're, I don't... Look, we're going to have to have a special episode. <laughs> a very, on a very special episode yeah. of 80s movie montage. We yeah. Cover the 70s movie. <laughs> I, 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 think we need to, I think we need to do that. Maybe, maybe we find a way to... Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> He's in The Jerk reds blade runner yeah. silkwood but i mean he's he's very very i couldn't think of three more everything. different movies right between the jerk silkwood and blade runner right he's in blood simple so he's in cobra uh fletch which is gonna come up at some point this year it'll happen we have that on the docket he's in critters back to school he was in raising arizona which we covered Great in both of those, in Back yeah. to School and uh, Raising Arizona, yes. Harry and the Hendersons. Mm-hmm. He is in the Milagro Beanfield War. All right. Clean and Sober. The Leonardo DiCaprio version of Romeo and Juliet. He's in My Best Friend's Wedding. More recently, he's in Knives Out. Okay. And then we were just discussing this when we knew we were going to like do this film. He has, I don't think he's going to be recurring because it was... Uh, flashback, but he is on the TV show The Righteous Gemstones. Oh, so nice. he plays Eli's father. I forget about that show occasionally because it is about six years between seasons. I know, uh, but the last season totally worth it. Yeah, no, it's a great show. I, mean, I love that show. Between yeah. that and What We Do in the Shadows, my two favorite TV shows. I can't think of many other like season finales that actually wrap things up in as a satisfying way as that show did. Okay. Moving on to Elizabeth McGovern, she plays Janine Pratt. Basically, like comrades, like kind of love interest, you know? Yeah, they like yeah. Each other. I mean, they're high schoolers, so yeah, they're just going on a couple dates. Yeah, and I mean, for the rest of the people mentioned, um, we have her and two more actors that I'm going to bring up, all very young, so all very early in their careers. Mm-hmm. And I think she was still actually, I want to say she studied at Juilliard. I think she got like special permission. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, To leave Juilliard to do this film. So. Well, they made a good choice. Yeah. Everyone involved. I agree with you. Um, She gets her own Best Supporting Actress nomination for Ragtime. Hmm. So that's also 80s film. She's in Once Upon a Time in America. She's having a baby. I thought this was interesting. I did not know this, that there is a 1990 film called The Handmaid's Tale. What? Yeah. What? Wow. That wow. she is in. Is it, is it the same yes. Same subject matter, same story? Yep. They Look, I'm just going to watch the film then. I'm going to save myself some time. Do I want to watch any of it? I don't know. I'm going to save myself the time of watching multiple seasons. I'll just, I'll just wrap it up, watch the film. Perfect. She's, she was on the TV show Three Moons Over Milford. Hmm. She's in the film Kick-Ass. I did enjoy that film. Yeah. Yeah. The 2010 Clash of the Titans. I think that that is highly inferior to the uh, old version, <laughs> but I do remember her in it. She was great. So more recently, she is definitely part of the Downton Abbey world. Okay. So she was on the TV series, and then they did a couple films after the fact. So she's in both the original film, Downton Abbey, and then its sequel called A New Era. I want you to be really honest with me. I'm going to ask you a serious question. How long did you think it was called Downtown Abbey? 
probably the probably the first time I heard it. Okay, because I thought it for like for probably two years. I thought it was downtown. <laughs> <laughs> probably the first time because yeah, when you first hear it, you're like, oh, downtown Abbey. Uh huh. And I think just I I don't I I feel like I was corrected pretty early on, but yes, I'm sure that the very first time I heard it, I probably thought it was downtown Abbey. There was sure. no one to correct me because I wasn't like. I didn't. To, I didn't watch it. Yeah, yeah. But it was so hugely popular when it first came out oh, that yeah. I think I just was like, "Oh, down, Demton, Demton Abbey." I thought that's just how they said downtown, like the Brit- British. <laughs> that's British. just how they said, isn't it? Da, da, no. Oh man. Okay. Moving on to the actress that is, we hear her voice um, at the top of the show, the character of Karen, played yes. by uh, Dinah Manoff. So. Yes, she she just has she shares one scene with Conrad in the entire film, but definitely an impactful character in the film. There's so much nuance in how she like plays that scene that like all comes back towards the end of the movie and like it makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was a really really important. Well, I guess that's how you played it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I mean, she's so familiar to me just because uh, we can't cover this. We covered its sequel, but we can't do Grease. But she is in the original Grease, mm. and she's great. She's great in that film. I mean, such a different character. Did we make a mistake by limiting ourselves to one decade? Oh, well, I mean, man, there would be a whole lot of movies to cover if we didn't. Well. We still have so many here. So she also was on the TV show Soap. Okay. Yeah. And then more film work. She's in Child's Play. Really? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. As, I, yeah. As well as Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael, the Winona Ryder film. Mm. Probably some people know her better from, she was on that show Empty Nest with Christy McNichol for okay. a really long time. So she was on that TV show as well as State of Grace. She's still with us. She, I, I don't know if she's just made the decision that she's not interested in acting anymore because her last credit, as of right now, is a 2008 film called Bart Got a Room. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So finally, we have Joe Laz- Lazenby. I think it's Lazenby, the character name. Oh, okay. Yeah. Played by Frederick Line. Uh-huh. I, 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 both of those, I'm doing the question <laughs> at the end because I don't know. But that's my best I think it's Lane. Lane. Okay. Because for alternative names, it says Frederick Lane, L-A-N-E. Oh, it does? Yeah. Oh, okay. So So he basically plays the the one friend of Conrad's who who does try to, like, talk to him and, like, see how he's doing. And, um, you know, at one point they have actually a very important conversation where he reaches out to – Conrad and you know wants to be there for him and talks about how he's also grieving because um Buck was his friend as well yeah they were like basically three best friends yeah and Conrad it's it's a really painful moment because Conrad tells him it's it's just too hard to be around you yeah so it's it's really a but a really honest exchange between the two of them. So he does have a pretty important role in the film. And as far as his acting career, I mean, he's been very busy and has been acting ever since. I mean, he has like something like 166, something like that, acting credits. He has been in a ton of stuff. Ton of stuff and has moved pretty smoothly between film and television. So 
Um, other early work of his, he was on the TV show Dallas, as well as Mancuso, FBI. He has, like, kind of smaller roles in some really huge films. He was in Con Air. Oh. Yeah, Men in Black. Uh, he was on the TV show Lost. This one, mm-hmm. I put in specifically for you. I appreciate that. He was on the TV show Supernatural. He was, yeah, he was the character Azazel. So he was like this uh, really Angel? demon, actually. Oh. Yeah, they, he was alternatively known as just Yellow Eyes because he was, in fact, the Yellow Eye demon that killed their mom. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was only in four episodes, but he was such an important character, and he was such a really, really like good villain for, for like what was just like a TV show. So he was great. Okay. Yeah. He also was in The Dark Knight Rises, uh, Zero Dark Thirty, more TV work, American Horror Story, as well as Chicago Fire. Um, he was in the film, The Greatest Showman. Okay. And then more recently, as far as like TV work goes, Yellowstone, Dr. Death, and then also the film The Eyes of Tammy Faye. But just in general. All right. Yeah. I mean, no, he's in he's in so much, you know, a lot of TV work, a lot of TV movies, especially earlier in his career. But mm. yeah, very busy. All right, Derek. Yeah. What do we got? We got a we got a synopsis? We got a synopsis. What do we got? Lay it on me. The accidental death of the older son of an affluent family deeply strains the relationships among the bitter mother, the good-natured father, and the guilt-ridden younger son. Damn, that's it's pretty much right on the money. It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, they really boil them down to like kind of the simplest <laughs> attributes they, of each character, but they, they do. But they're all they're all kind of like right. Yes, it, they are. They are, yeah. And it is, I mean, for a film that has a lot of nuance in terms of the emotional states of the characters and the dynamics between all of them, that's about as simple as you can get. And that is what synopses are. So Mm -hmm. I think it does, does the trick. It does. Yeah. On that note, let's get into it with our returning guest, Jeff. Let's do it. All right. Well, for Everybody listening out there, we are so pleased and excited to have back on the show for a record fourth time. Amazing. Amazing. One of our favorite people, Jeff York. Jeff has been with us since all the way back in early season two. He first came on the show for Trading Places. Mm -hmm. And then last season, we were very lucky to have him twice. He came on for The Untouchables as well as The Thing, which gives you a little bit of insight into just how comprehensive his knowledge of film is. I mean, all three of those movies, totally different. Mm -hmm. And then today's film, also totally different from, from the other three. And we just absolutely adore him, love having him on the show. He... Given his, it's interesting because given his comprehensive knowledge of film, that also really ties into what he does. He has so many talents. He is a writer, ad man, illustrator. He's an editorialist from multiple online film publications, screenwriter, television development consultant. And we are just overjoyed to have him on the show once again. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. This is so special. I love the fact that I am your 
longest or most yes. prolific guest. <laughs> yes. And uh, I just adore being on your show. You're such great people. And I couldn't be more happy to be here a fourth time. Yay. Well, let's Yay. dive in. Yeah, I was going to say, we're just ordinary people. But <laughs> oh, oh, I was wondering how long it was going to take to get to... <laughs> And our extraordinary guest is Mr. <laughs> Jeff York, but I'm going to say our extraordinary hosts are Anna and Jeff. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I wanted to get the humor out of the way since there's literally none. Oh, yeah, there's not movie. It's, tr- it, it's a heavy movie. It, it is a heavy movie. Yeah. But this is why I'm so curious because, you know, we've been friends with you, Jeff, for a while now. And I know that Ordinary People is a much beloved film of yours. And that is true. You know, we we start this the same way with everybody, with asking if they do have first memories of the film that we're discussing. And I'm I'm particularly curious about if you do have any memories of like your first response to this film and just kind of kicking things off with like, where does this interest in and in kind of like um leaning into this film come from? Well, that's a great question to start off with. Uh, I could maybe make it simple and say, coming from a broken home, Mm -hmm. I could relate to problems within that home between the parents and um, a breakup, et cetera, et cetera. However, Mm -hmm. for me, it goes deeper into sort of what the experience was like in the movie theater with an audience. Up until this time, most of the movies that I had seen with audiences had been comedies or feel-good movies or things that we could all laugh and enjoy. Even horror movies, I think, in a large degree, when you're in a theater with people, uh, tends to gravitate towards the fun because it's fun to get scared together and you all scream yeah. or you laugh at somebody else scream. You're doing, ah, you know, the, the jumps like that. It's a very communal thing. Uh, the amount of real dramas that I had seen sort of on my own with an audience I could probably count on two hands and they were mostly films that you sat there and kind of were quiet watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times dramas take a long time to sort of reach their effect. And, and at the very end, you, you have the full uh, immersion of it. But until then, it's kind of steady by steady, beat by beat, story by story, uh, build by build. With this movie, I think because it started off with a very controversial and harrowing subject material, and that is suicide or attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. From yeah. the very get-go, I remember when I saw it, I saw it alone when I was up in school in Minneapolis, and it was a packed house because there was uh, you know, talk about this. It was getting good notices. It was Robert Redford's first movie, and he was one of the biggest, hottest actors at the time. So I think he brought a lot of probably audience into the theater because he was directing it. But from the very get-go, people were just sort of on edge, And you could feel this palpable tension in the audience watching all this because every scene in this movie to me is kind of you're with Conrad on edge as Mm -hmm, he is on mm -hmm, edge through it all. He mm. doesn't feel comfortable in his family. He doesn't know what to do. And I'll tell you when I knew it was going to be a great movie, you're going to laugh at this, but it's so true. I knew it was going to be a great movie because I knew walking into, okay, this is going to be tense because it's about a guy who tried to kill himself. He thinks he killed his brother and this beautiful rich family isn't doing so well because of it, et cetera, et cetera. But I knew it was going to be a great movie two different times. The first one was when uh, Beth, the mom, uh, Conrad's mom and it played by Mary Tyler Moore, makes... Conrad's favorite breakfast for his first day back at school, this French mm-hmm. toast would look, which would make Martha Stewart weep. It's just this incredible <laughs> thick three, you know, brioche <laughs> portion. It looked delicious. It, it looked incredible. <laughs> and he's not hungry because he looks like he hasn't slept. He's got rings under his eyes. He looks terrible. 
and he's clearly not ready to go back to school and she is not going to have any of it because we've got to get back to normal now. We're ordinary mm -hmm. people, right? This is how ordinary people move on with their lives. And before he can really say, I don't want it a second time, as dad uh, Calvin, played by Don Sutherland, tries to get Tim Hutton to eat it, Beth takes it and puts it in that garbage disposal. And Redford has the shot overhead of this garbage disposal and these three incredible plum pieces of French toast just being sacrificed into that mm -hmm. disposal. Grrr, it's like, fuck, this mm -hmm. is already tense. We're, we're, we're making French toast uh, collateral damage here in this little mm -hmm. war that's going on. That's this uh. That's how I first knew that she was a maniac when she took full <laughs> pieces of French toast. Don't didn't just throw them out. No, she had to put them down that disposal. Yeah, who puts full who toast in yes. a garbage disposal? Just the the. You know who does that? Ordinary people. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it's going to become a drinking game with a number of times. I love it. I love that it. In. Um, and then the second time, just to finish the thought, because I sure. uh, everybody's sort of tense watching it, yeah. was when um, Conrad is going to school and the buddies who pick him up are all kind of blathering on about algebra and things that typical teenagers talk about kind of jokey and jocular about it all. And they stop and a train goes by and Conrad, yeah. hears the train, jing, jing, jing. And Redford lets us hear the train first. And then we look up and we see his point of view of the train. And then silently he cuts in a shot of him from probably the limousine going past the graveyard, probably the day they buried mm -hmm. his brother. And I thought, wow, this is going to be more of an art house film. And I knew what those were then because I'd seen a few of them here and there or something very special. Uh, and everybody around me was kind of like, oh, you know, there's this kind of gasping around me at how artfully crafted and carefully appointed this movie was. And I think mm -hmm. you could really sense Robert Redford's study of this material and the book and its meaning. And I think as good as that uh, Oscar winning screenplay adapted by Elvin Sargent from the Judith Guest novel was, I think this film lives in what's between those lines, in those hesitations, mm -hmm. those looks, the things that aren't said or the, the thinking before somebody speaks in this movie. And those little moments like that, which are offhand, but so telling. And mm -hmm. that for me made it a great film. So I'm walking out of there very tense, very shook, but also knowing I just experienced a, a movie I could relate to as, as a, a kid from a, a divorced family, but also a film goer who just saw something very, very special. And, you know, for something that's basically just suburban living was shot like it was much more than that. I mean, really well said. And you brought up a couple points that I definitely want to circle back to, but I think the first one is what you mentioned about Conrad or Connie. And right. first of all, I, I don't, I don't want to ever kind of take away from somebody getting acknowledgement for their performance, but holy cow, did he actually totally 1000% as much as I loved Judd Hirsch, who is also up for the same, um, best supporting actor, uh, Oscar. Holy cow. Did Hutton deserve this i was just it's been a very long time since i've watched this film and i was really astounded by how amazing he was and it comes through before you know anything about what he did to himself yeah. or the tragedy that's taken place in the family right just his you you nailed it like this this tension and this like jitteriness and this like it was making your I felt the same way it was making me feel so uneasy seeing this kid who could not settle down 
and just was so uncomfortable in his skin. And I I was like, where is he pulling that from at such a young age? As great as his performance was, and it was amazing, every performance in this yes. movie. Yes. Which just, it, it kind of makes his stand out even more. Yes. Because amidst a cast of performers who were all like just incredible, he stood out even above that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. There, I think. I think that's also where Redford, as an actor, brought so much to the party as a director, because he showed that he's not only been studying how film is put together with the editing, the impact of the shots, that camera angle, smack dab right over that French toast, as opposed to just her <laughs> tossing it from the side in the sink, uh, was so much more impactful. But he's an actor, and therefore, as a director, I think he's an actor's director, and mm-hmm. obviously he knew how to get a lot of performance out of, uh, out of all these people who are terrific actors. And yet to your very point, uh, Derek, I think one of the reasons that they're all so exceptional too, is some of these people are very much playing against type. I mean, Mary mm-hmm. Tyler Moore is playing yeah. this cold, brittle person a couple years after her Mary Tyler Moore show ended where she was America's sweetheart, Tim Hutton, we don't know anything about him. And he is from the get go walking around like, you know, he's in shell shock. Uh, even Donald Sutherland, who they originally mm. wanted Gene Hackman for the role, and then they wanted Redford for the role, isn't the kind of person with his kind of quirky uh, resume up until that point who you would think is playing sort of the most grounded and sort of confident in in most regards uh, person in this family, or, or at least securing himself in, in many respects. Uh, and yet, he was fantastic in it. And all those other people were great too. And even with Judd Hirsch's a somewhat, I would say, I don't say cliche, but you know, somewhat cliched example of, Oh, the mensch of a Jewish psychiatrist is a lot tougher than you would think that role might be even towards the end. And Hirsch didn't charm or play up his charm or his sweetness or some of the cute stuff that, you know, we fell in love with him or taxi either. He was playing a pretty, hard guy uh, who wasn't going to take the crap and let, you know, Conrad, uh, you know, constantly torture himself. Mm -hmm. He was a really, you know, sort of practicing tough love psychiatrist. So even that's kind of a a little bit of uh, anti-cliche of what, you know, the the psychiatrist who's the great healer and and the the father figure. Not so much here. Uh, And Judd Mm -hmm. Hirsch was encouraged not to play him as too much of a mensch. In fact, I think, like I said, Mm -hmm. he played him as actually kind of a tougher coach than say the, the lackadaisical slacker that M- Emmett Walsh is playing, who mm-hmm. doesn't really seem to give a shit about anything. And I love the fact that they cast somebody who doesn't look like he'd be able to get into a pool and not <laughs> immediately sink to the bottom as the swim coach. But, uh, but your point, I mean, it's a, it was a great job with all the actors and even like, you know, Quinn Redeker or Meg Mundy in small, they were known actors, veteran character actors by that time. And they're in small roles. They're ter- James Sicking. They're terrific too. Um, and a lot of, newcomers i think this was frederick laney's uh first film that he was cast in playing um joe the the best friend of connie and adam mm-hmm. baldwin who went on to have a, a mm-hmm. rather strong career after that i think it might have been one of his first films too because these were all cast local uh so you know bravo to redford for knowing mm-hmm. really how to pick talent and have them do things that not only really come through on screen but also sometimes play against expectation which i think made it all the more powerful Absolutely. And definitely with like the main players, I very much want to do a deeper dive into each of, you know, sure. their their roles. I think that um one one point that you made a little bit earlier that I wanted to get back to as well is, you know, you mentioned when 
Connie is in the car with his friends on his way to school and that flashback to the funeral and just that being indicative of the way that the story unfolds. I thought that that was really interesting again, because it had been a while since I watched this, I had forgotten the way that things were revealed. Um, yeah. I had never seen time. it. So I was, oh, wow. I was like, intentionally trying to not ask you questions because <laughs> I trusted that like, that it was a deliberate, mm-hmm. these were all deliberate choices so that mm-hmm. I wasn't supposed to know exactly what was happening. And it did it all, it all eventually like unpacked in a way mm-hmm. that made more sense, but not knowing really like heightened like i didn't i I thought i saw the scars when he was in bed at the beginning Mm. of the movie so i i kind of had a sense of what was happening um but yeah that the the scene at the stop in the car with his friends i i didn't know if he was gonna like panic and like leave Mm -hmm. the car or Mm -hmm. exactly what was gonna happen you could tell it did such a good job of just showing like how much turmoil he was in Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that you know and i want to you you mentioned um the main screenwriter on this. And I, I definitely want to give credit to Sargent. I mean, he, he won, um, like you mentioned, Jeff for this. And I think that this is like, not, not to make this a, an episode where we're like, you know, pitting the way that screenwriting used to kind of play out versus today. But I think that, you know, the attempted suicide as well as, the death of the brother, those would have all been like more front loaded. I feel like now films like they just like almost can't help themselves. I feel like, you know, whether it's nervous execs or whatever the case may be, like, it's like, you gotta, you gotta know right away. You gotta know right away so that you can like hook people. And, and I think that what this film does so incredibly well to your point, Derek, like as being a first time viewer where you're like, okay, something is up in this family but like you don't know what yet yeah you just know that there's like this like permeating tension and discomfort with all of them and you don't and they're all handling it in a totally different way i mean i went in as uh, probably about as blind as i could Mm -hmm. like i I think i i knew just before going into it that there was like a brother that had passed away Mm -hmm. but that was that was it i didn't really know the context or the circumstances Mm of that which was great because you don't really experience that in the movie until like well towards mm-hmm. like the, the latter part of it. So Jeff, I have a kind of a two parter for you. Sure. Um, one I'm curious, you know, and it's to- totally uh, okay to disagree with me, but do you feel like this would have been written in a different way if it had been made today in terms of the way that information is revealed and then a lot of information is revealed via flashback, like you you pointed out one of the instances with the funeral scene. So do you feel like the flashbacks work for you in terms of revealing information about the family? Uh, I think it would have been written different today. I think it would have been much more upfront. In fact, they might have done the the death of, of Buck uh, in a pre-credit sequence even. Yeah. They might have started yeah. the movie with that today. And then that's so many movies do that where the big most dramatic thing is kind of the pre thing and it hooks you and then here's the fallout and the rest of the movie. And you know what, if we not seen ordinary people or read Judith Guest's terrific book, uh, that might have played fine, especially in lieu of that's how so much storytelling is done today. But um, I think it was done for a couple of reasons then, because I think, again, there was a, a little bit more, uh, time taken to to story tell and 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 not necessarily choose the path of least resistance. I think Redford 
to answer your second question, Anna, also chose the path of least resistance in regards to the flashbacks. He doesn't use a lot of elongated flashbacks. They're brief no. little snippets of it, almost mm-hmm. just memories in their head. Like when Conrad's taking the flight home from the bad Christmas vacation with Beth and he remembers them dancing and being so happy uh, for just brief snippets. And that's what you see. And and all through it, there's moments like that when he's separating the brothers who are arguing about whose sweater is uh, nine-tenths of the law and stuff like that. And just <laughs> little throwaway things, but they're little moments that inform the drama, but also are used sparingly because I think flashbacks, the way they are in real life, in our memory, are snippets. And they aren't like, well, now I'm going to think back to this entire period in a party where I met my wife and blah, blah, blah happened. And half an hour later, we're uh, at her place. That's not how memory works. And I think Redford understood that. And he also understood that elongated flashbacks in movies tend to be a little bit of a cheat. I think he wanted to tell the story in real time here and let those little moments help us understand more of the character in the present because that's what they were reminded of and that's where they were dwelling on sometimes as a counter, sometimes as a affirmation of the same exact problem they were having, but it was not a crutch in any way, shape or form. And that's the other thing I think about today's movies is I think they use flashbacks as a crutch. There's entire Mm -hmm. movies that, go way, way, way back and spend 20 minutes showing you what happened before. The only time yeah. I've seen it really work really well and kind of a clever plot twist is what Ryan Johnson is doing in his oeuvre right now uh, with Knives Out and Glass mm-hmm. Onion and even on television with Poker Face. You get these, oh, here's the sort of real story, kind of in a way Quentin Tarantino did sometimes in his films too, where you go back and, okay, here's the backstory to kind of give you context of this. But more often than not, when flashbacks are used today, they're really crutches and um, they're there just because the screenwriter doesn't know how to tell the story in real time with the present characters. But Redford realized that and said, I can't use them for more than just snippets of memory. Mm-hmm. I felt like in in Ordinary People, the flashbacks were like, th- there was almost this disorienting quality to the way that they would intrude. And they felt like you were getting like this insight into these intrusive thoughts yes. that had been you know, just following this family since this tragic event. And so I, you know, I, I like the way that they, you know, you would generally just like continue to hear like some of the, the background noise, like with the train at the stop sign. Um, so you would, you weren't going, it, it wasn't like the, the flashback in Bloodsport where you are going on a journey for 20 minutes. What a comparison. <laughs> you know, cause that's, that's like the example of the, of the worst one, probably the definition. <laughs> Wow, you really went for That's it. Yeah, I know. Hilarious. I, I thought these were like they, they contributed to like the tension and the feel that the story, the movie mm-hmm. was trying to give you. And one thing, so one of the flashbacks that I thought was for for me anyway, the most interesting was when you are seeing uh Beth completely like eyes of adoration for her older son Buck, where he's alive and she's like laying on the grass and um, you know, she's like laughing at something that he says. I think what is really interesting about that flashback is I think the probably primary intention is to show the amount of love and affection that she used to show for the other son. Yeah. But they do cut to Connie. And because one thing that I think was going through my mind, which again, I couldn't really remember from previous viewings was, you know, did he have resentment over the way that Beth treated his brother or, you know, what was his response to his brother? But then you cut away in the flashback to him 
looking at Buck the exact same way that Beth is. Like, they both adored him. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because, at least for me, I never got the impression. Well, while Conrad, I sensed, yes, was... um, was in pain over the fact that his mom didn't show him love. And in fact, he thinks that, you know, she hates him, but I never got the sense that he was resentful of the affection that he, that she showed Buck. No, I, yeah, I agree. Which I think is just an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Um, what do you, did, did that come through for you, Jeff, or did you interpret that a different way? No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, Buck was the star. Uh, he was the standout child, and Connie was probably more of the quieter, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to some degree more reliable person because I think he didn't mm-hmm. have sort of the ego and the the chutzpah that Buck did. And, and yet, as you said, both Connie and Beth – the mom were sort of enraptured by his storytelling and, mm-hmm. and on, you know, waiting, hanging on every word of his. The thing that I think that scene underscores too is that Conrad feels not only guilty about his brother's death, but maybe feels like he can't replace Buck. He can't right. be this son who can live up to this sort of affection. And maybe he knows that even then he probably felt, well, Buck's clearly, you know, more popular. He's older. Or he's a little bit more the star, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think he felt like that was necessarily a terrible thing because mm-hmm. he probably loved him too. But then with him gone, he's realizing all the more, I can't fill his shoes. Uh, I'm not only feeling guilty about being responsible for his death, but if I'm supposed to be loved the way he was, it's not going to happen. And it sure as hell isn't going to happen now, not only because I don't have the personality, but because I think my mom blames me for Buck's death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that comes through. I mean, it, that's really interesting what you said, because Derek and I were discussing our interpretation of when um, Berger is pushing Connie to say, like, what did you do? Like, why? Like why do you feel this way in kind of um, the last session that we see between them where he calls him in the middle of the night. Right. And when Connie reveals, like I hung on. Yeah, and that's the one thing he did wrong. Yeah. He stayed with the boat. Yes. And I think that that is such an interesting statement that he made because I think that can, and not, not to say that any of the interpretations are wrong. It could be more than one thing, but you know, like Derek was asking, is he saying that he was wrong because he should have gone after Buck? And I, I, I never thought about it that way. Like I always interpreted that statement as he, what he did wrong is that he survived. Yeah. That like he was actually stronger. Yes. Because he didn't, and it could be both, but then I think that also ties into your point with Beth being upset that he was the one to survive and, or that he didn't try to, uh, save Buck, you know, like it could be all of it, um, which is interesting. Well, and interesting too, how the fact that Alvin Sargent, and I, I, if I recall in the book uh, that I read many years ago by Judith Guest, didn't go into explaining those scenes. We don't see that. I mean, the, the closest we get to the history is when Conrad has attempted suicide and the paramedics are outside and Beth is clutching her 
hand to her mouth, shocked yeah. that her son has tried to kill himself and they're getting him ready for the hospital. But we never see the confrontation scene. We don't know how he got back to shore. We don't know yeah. who mm -hmm. came and got him. We didn't hear any of the explanations or anything. Like that. And I love that because it's left for us to infer. But my guess is that the Beth at least probably lost not only her favorite son, uh, mm -hmm. she had to lose one. If it was a Sophie's choice, she would clearly have picked Buck, but maybe she had questions for Connie. But like, well, how did you survive? Why did you survive? Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. I, I hung on the boat and he was kind of laughing about it. And then he slipped and he fell. Well, why didn't you go after him? You're right there. You couldn't mm -hmm. somehow grab him and pull him up. Well, no, I, I, it was so windy and rocky. I mean, you can just imagine what that is though. Yep. Sergeant, Guest, and Redford never show us those scenes. So we don't know what kind of histrionics went on that may have made more of a gulf between Beth and Conrad. But as Conrad explains to Berger at the end, I hung on. I, whatever instincts or cool-headedness or just survival uh, sensibilities, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get him. Uh, I thought he might have been yeah. able to come back up because he was a strong swimmer and he was a strong guy and he was Mr. Big Man on campus and would realize what his situation was. But for whatever reason, he didn't. And then you see the panic Conrad screaming for him, but he's still hanging on because he knows if he, his brother can't right. hang, can't get up, he's not going to. So he did the one smart thing that shows really in, in some respects, at least in that moment, he was the superior human being thinking uh, mm -hmm. and realizing how dangerous this was. I mean, Buck is worried about dad's going to kick our ass. It's like, you know, stop joking around and laughing. This mm -hmm. is serious. We're in trouble. This is life or death. And Buck sort of didn't understand that until he was dragged under by the current that he couldn't, he couldn't beat back. So, but yeah, that's what it all is. And I think it's all about forgiveness. Beth hasn't really forgiven him for not mm -hmm. maybe trying to save Buck for being out there in the first place. Yes, her anger at yeah, Buck think, for being out yeah. there. She can't get mad at him. So of course she can only get mad at Connie. And then Conrad anger at himself that somehow they didn't play this smarter or, or serious right off the bat. He didn't go for him at all. And that he hung on. Uh, it just, it's, it's consuming him. So all these different kinds of questions coming at him that he can't answer other than I sensed it was bad. And when he was lost, I didn't think I could do anything except hang on and try to live myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, um, the, the point you just mentioned about, we shouldn't have been out there in the first place. He, he brings that up. And then right. I wondered if there's like some of the, I don't really know if that's how, how Beth thought of him, but we find out more towards the end that that's how his dad thought that he didn't worry about him. He knew that he right. had mm -hmm. in, in many ways, like a, a better head on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, you know, if Beth also thought that about him, if there was some additional resentment because he should have been the one, he was the smarter one. He should have done something to not put them in that situation in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it, like when I was thinking about it, it went beyond just him like holding on, but almost like there was the sense that it was his fault. I think he felt that way as well. It was his fault that they were there in the first place. Right. And, and to some degree too, I think, unfortunately for Beth, and I, I know she's sort of set up as the villain though. I feel very sorry for her throughout the film, even at the end when she takes that suitcase down and kind of loses it because she realizes that she is the wrong person. She has not handled this well at all. And she is now the one having to leave because her husband has given up on her. But there's so many clues that we see throughout that this movie is really about reactions. Uh, Conrad's reaction to 
this terrible storm is to be serious. And his brothers is to still think that it's funny. And the real whooping is coming when dad gets a hold of us. Um, you know, they're at the party and Kelvin, who just has to let it out somewhere because obviously he can't talk about it with Beth at home, casually mm -hmm. admits to a party guest that Connie has seen a psychiatrist uh, and they're not quite out of the woods from the suicide attempt. And Beth doesn't get mad that, you know, this son is still struggling with whether he wants to be part of the world or not. She's mad that her husband has told a friend at a party, it is a very private matter. That's what matters mm -hmm. to her. Yeah. And that's so the wrong reaction, such a misread of what she's needed as a mother. She thinks that she's going to be looked down upon as, as a mother because her friends know that Connie's in the psycho ward still. He's still seen a psychiatrist. He, he hasn't, they, they, he's still a problem. And that means that Beth's a bad mother as opposed to maybe if I support him, that makes me a great mom, not somebody mm -hmm. who just keeps up appearances at these Tony parties in the suburbs. I no excellent point. And I think one thing that um should, maybe should be brought up is the perception of mental health. Yes. Today versus in 1980. That's right. It's almost and, been it, it's been like the stigma associated with getting help has been like whittled down to the point now where you see so many commercials for it that it's almost been commoditized, yes. which I have I have like feelings about. I'm not sure if that's like swinging things too far in another direction. But at the very least, there's like a much greater openness about talking mm -hmm. about it. Which might, and you're totally right, and that might make it challenging for people who don't have any familiarity with this film and see it for the first time yeah. and are like, why would she respond that way? <laughs> What's the big deal? Like, I think that um, because while, like in my childhood, I, I, understand exactly like why she acted that way that was very much anything revolving around mental health was not discussed particularly in that time period particularly yes. in that part of the country yes. particularly for that socioeconomic class yes totally exactly right. yeah i can't claim to be from that socioeconomic class or specifically no. those suburbs but i did grow up in the of chicago suburbs <laughs> and 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 it is spot on that it no zip the lip not talked about mm -hmm. and um so i just am saying that because i think that it again could be challenging for some people if they're seeing this for the first time to just completely disconnect from why she would respond that way whereas that is that was a very realistic response for a lot of pe the majority of people yeah um at that time so well to that yeah. very point i would just like to just take a quick um not necessarily tangent. I don't want to hijack sure. your show. But uh, <laughs> one of the reasons I love this movie is I've actually had to, at times, be a great defender of it out there in the public or amongst fellow critics and, and movie fans in this regard. Um, it won Best Picture that year and beat... Mm -hmm. Raging Bull. And of course, the consensus view now is that Raging Bull was one of the greatest movies of the 80s and should have easily beaten ordinary people and people scratch their heads and go, why did ordinary people win? I mean, you can make the argument for uh, actors are the largest voting branch. They voted for Redford for his skill with actors. It's a mm. it's an actor's showcase. 
it's a very human story that connects with you. It's a person you care about and, and makes you cry and feel uh, so much where Jake LaMotta was asshole from the beginning and asshole to the end. Doesn't learn a fucking thing in that movie. I'm sorry. It's a great movie, but he doesn't learn anything as typical arcs go that engage audiences. Uh, it's why Coda wins over Power of the Dog. As much as Power of the Dog, I think, is a more artfully made film and a number of levels, Coda connects to people and you care mm-hmm. about the, 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 the daughter who's the main character. Um, but also, everything you've just said now is context to why that movie won in the year that it did. At that point, mental health, suicide, those kinds of topics, families disintegrating that were not the typical types of families that disintegrated or had the problems mm-hmm. with alcohol or economic disparity or racial strife or things like that, uh, were not seen ever anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that was something very different, a very different version of sort of a domestic drama. Now, since that time, HBO and even Movies of the Week and Lifetime have all sort of risen to that sort of level that movies like Kramer versus Kramer the year before and uh, Ordinary People, and I would argue in 82 and 83, terms of endearment level to like, mm-hmm. wow, we're looking at really hard looks at the American family and what they are. American Beauty was like that in 1999. Mm-hmm. A really interesting new take on where the American family is. And that was kind of revolutionary at the time. So at the time, Raging Bull was this incredible film, very well reviewed, not as big a box office as, as some of these, including Ordinary People. Uh, had an anti-hero for The League, which was a little bit novel still in, in that time period. There's been a few in the 70s, but it was still kind of a different person to hang your whole story on. Somebody was unlikable. Uh, but Ordinary People had all that revolutionary stuff to it as well. You didn't see movies about attempted suicide. You didn't see movies about mental health and, and somebody going to a psychiatrist as the main plot point to get better and get better through the course of the film. You did not see white, rich, privileged people having the kinds of histrionic problems that only people in Edward Albee and Tennessee William plays had. Well, okay. So I mentioned him briefly. I really do want to dive into Donald Sutherland's performance in this film. I, I just, he, he's probably my favorite character um, in the film. And there's really trying to keep it all together. He's trying to keep his family together. Really is. And there's something so vulnerable about him. Almost, almost more so than Conrad. There's Mm -hmm. something about him that my heart just aches for him. And, and what he is dealing with. And so I'm, I'm putting it on the table, how I feel about him, but you know, Jeff, how did you respond to his performance and and just this character as part of this family. Well, it's interesting because I think in some respects he's got at least an interesting of an arc, if not maybe in some respects a greater arc than Conrad. Because Conrad's arc is a little bit clear cut that he's got to mm-hmm. become forgiving of himself. Uh, he doesn't necessarily have time to worry about the family around him when he's really just kind of worrying about getting his part in that family fixed. Where Conrad, or Kelvin, excuse me, has to try to keep the family together. And he is empathizing with Connie and sympathizing with uh, Beth and, and, and all the in-betweens as well as grieving his own son's loss and having to deal with his own private guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's interesting too because at the very first part of the movie, I would say up until about halfway through, uh, Kelvin is shown to be for lack of a better term, uh, fragile or weak on his own, in his own right. Um, uh, after the French toast episode, uh, Kelvin thinks of something that he wants to tell Conrad about, but Conrad's gone by then. So he's yeah. late to the dance, even with just trying to engage his son with conversation and connect with him and all that kind of stuff. And doesn't quite know what to say and you know, even kind of lets Beth talk down to him. Like, I think it's a very private matter and they drive home uh, kind of in – solitude and even when he brings up the black shoes versus the brown shoes and says why did that matter and she's just kind of like well i just it was nothing it was just let's move on and he kind of moves on so he doesn't stand up for himself doesn't stand up even though he's trying in different ways to connect with connie to probe deeper and get beth to admit that these things are you know not important and why were you reacting this way and it all culminates, I think, in this incredible scene where he goes and visits Dr. Berger. And I also love the fact that right there, Redford decides not to do any camera tricks whatsoever. He just locks that camera down on Donald Sutherland for about three minutes and lets him talk. And we're sort of looking at him the same way Berger is. And he tells us who he is. And you realize then that really Calvin is a very strong man. He's a quiet man. He's yeah. a gentle man, but he is very strong. And he has been keeping all of this together. He's probably been the only thing that's kept Conrad kind of going because he's the only person kind of reaching out to him and trying to engage him. Hey, I got those tickets, you know, the, 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 mm-hmm. the, the I'm working tickets. on the Michigan state. Yeah. Tickets. Working on Michigan yeah. state tickets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Conrad pretending to read his book when he's basically just sitting there kind of lost in his own, uh, stew. Um, but, um, you know, he's actually very strong in keeping it together. And of course, you know, at the end, he's the one who, really makes the fateful decision is like, if this family is going to heal, you have to leave right now and go heal mm-hmm. thyself because we can't heal with you here. Mm-hmm. And, and when he confesses to her, I don't think I love you anymore. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do about that. Genius. I mean, what a strong, bold, mm-hmm. ballsy statement to say, and yet, you know, emotionally vulnerable too. And it's it's I think it's Sutherland's greatest performance. Um, he was the one actor that Oscar overlooked that year. The one guy who didn't get a nomination from this movie that should have. Not that that's the end Which, all. Which pardon all. me, but that's bullshit. <laughs> I know, and it's crazy. They always uh, well, the other one who was in a great movie and it was the second fiddle uh, as far as the Academy went to is Anthony Hopkins, who was really the lead character in The Elephant Man, and he was terrific as Doctor Trevs, and he didn't get nominated either. Grant you, John Hurt was terrific as the Elephant Man, but. I mean, they had to put Timothy Hutton in the supporting actor category to make sure, sure he won because nobody was going to beat uh, De Niro as LaMotta that year. And mm. that's a great performance. But Donald Sutherland as Calvin Jarrett should have been nominated. And it's, yep. I think, one of cinema's greatest performances and certainly one of cinema's greatest unsung performances, as incredible as it is. Fully agree. I, I'm so glad that you brought up that scene with um, you know, him – telling Beth, I need to talk to you about the day of the funeral. What I found so interesting about that, which at least to me completely reveals the dynamic between them is, you know, he very rightfully is saying like, it didn't matter. Why would it matter? We were going to our son's funeral. What the hell does it, you know, who cares if I'm wearing brown or black shoes? And she doesn't ever say to him, you're right. And, or I'm sorry. She does yeah. come over to him. Yeah. She does comfort him. She does hug him, but she just says it's okay. It feels yeah. like it's the only time in the movie where where like there's a sincere attempt, but even then she doesn't really She cannot It's like they're not even speaking the same yeah, language. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like even in that moment she can't just say you're right, I was wrong. 
you're right. It didn't matter. Like the most she can say is it's okay. Interesting right. thing about that other moment when, when he talks about how he's not sure he still loves her in mm-hmm. the, in the like dining room mm-hmm. in the morning. The first time they filmed that, he felt like he had too much crying involved. Mm. So they reshot it and it was Redford reading her lines to mm. him so that he could redo oh, it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. That was my fun. That's fact. right. Which also oh, shows you. It's not that fun, but it is a fact. <laughs> well, no, that's a great fact because it also shows you, I think, that Redford is adaptable and he mm-hmm. is a director's, uh, actor's director. And that yeah. um, when uh, Calvin, when, uh, when uh, Conrad expressed, excuse me, when Donald expressed interest in wanting to redo it, he said, okay, yeah, let's do another take. Yeah. On. Let's, let's, yeah. He, he went with him on what he think he, uh, make it better. And I, I thought that was great. I also have to say, uh, it just uh, speaking of, um, you know, Beth not really being able to apologize and, and, and all that, which we know is, is of course she can't, but I also love the fact that her one sort of scene where we get to know a little bit more about her, uh, is that famous scene on the golf course when, Basically, Connie says, uh, uh, Kelvin says, you know, I think Connie would enjoy that too. And she says, do you do that uh, intentionally or is it just, and then, because she doesn't want to necessarily think of them as a threesome. It's now she's just kind of concentrating on her husband. And then, you know, she says, uh, uh, he says something like, uh, he just wants to know that you don't hate him. And she goes, hate him. How could I hate him? Mothers don't hate their sons. And then her brother says, Beth, we just want you to be happy. And she, and this is where I think it's just a couple of lines she has, but she goes, you know, Happy, you tell me the definition of happy, but first make sure your kids are good and safe and they haven't mm-hmm. fallen off a horse. And I think the other one was hit by a car or drowned in that swimming pool you're so proud of. And there is kind of like, there you go. <laughs> like she has almost resigned herself that she can no longer be fundamentally happy. Mm-hmm. And so the only kind of, I don't know, when I say joy, it's not joy, but in, in sort of the regularity, the ordinariness, the, the comfort of of habit is here's how we act. Here's how I dress. Here's how I keep the house. It's almost like she's just defaulted to these surfacey things that, well, at least I can look like I'm happy, but I'm not happy. And then you realize it's not that she's necessarily hateful or spiteful, but she doesn't know how to not be loving. She doesn't know how to be mm-hmm. loving anymore. And it comes off as hateful. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it is really interesting her her refusal to i don't know to show any kind of vulnerability and you know when a couple times now Derek you've brought up her mother mm-hmm. and we see we see a little bit like I, I understand why you um the foundation was was laid there by yeah. by her mom as yeah. far as like how how you keep a home mhm mhm and and the things that are talked i mean even between their little discussion where she admits to her mom that conrad is is seeing some, talking to somebody and you know obviously her mother does not approve of that and the fact that Beth, like it, it's weird. There's these like shades of gray in that, like in in that one particular moment, Beth is being more open minded. As much as she doesn't like it either, she's that she like does bring it up to her mom. She does. Where like her mom doesn't even want it. Like, why would he do that? Why do you need to do that? I thought that was over. But she already like Beth doesn't like it. She knows that she doesn't like it. She probably suspects that her mom isn't going to because her mom is the reason 
in large part that she doesn't. So it's probably comforting to her to bring this up so that she gets this like Reass- reinforced yeah. reassurance. Yeah, that's like, true. That's yeah, true. mom, you're right. This is horse yeah. shit. Yeah. Which, and, and so it circles just a little bit to just one final thing I wanted to say about Donald Sutherland and that from my perception of the character, it's actually quite a progressive character in terms of a male figure mm-hmm. who shows both affection to his child and has understanding for what he's going through and is also someone who is willing to talk about these issues. Expressing your emotions in the way that he did. Not not super popular in the 80s. Exactly. It turns out. Exactly. That's yeah. right. That's right. So yeah, I just and that was kind of yeah. progressive to your point, not only for men in America, maybe yeah. even to some degree a large part today in a way, uh, uh, admitting wrong, uh, admitting weakness, admitting uncertainty. That's uh, are really signs of strength that I would argue that uh, a lot of men still have trouble embracing. Uh, but also, I think just for a film to show somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. So I love Donald. I'm just going to say that one more time. I love <laughs> Donald Sutherland in this role. He, he really just, I'm, I, I think you're right, Jeff. I think it is truly an unsung performance. He, he deserves certainly more acknowledgement for it. Okay. So switching gears just a touch. Sure. I'm really curious what your thoughts are on kind of this like subplot with, and I understand, I understand why it's there, but just um, how effective you think the subplot is of Connie's relationship with his friend from the hospital, Karen. Interesting. Well, of course you've got the two women who are sort of uh, the sort of the secondary plots. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Elizabeth Govern character is a Mm -hmm. potential girlfriend, uh, somebody who doesn't know all of his past and just sort of sees him starting in front of me now. And, you know, she needs to know a little bit about him to get him and get herself acclimated to him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the Karen is kind of in some respects, Connie's perceived lifeline other than Dr. Berger, because they went through this together. They both made it out. They're trying to move on with their lives. Uh, he calls her and looks forward to seeing her. But as soon as she showed up, I had a sense that it was, not necessarily all that it meant to be. And I don't know if that's Dinah Manoff playing sort of between the lines or whatever, but she was evading a lot of the sort of attempts by Conrad to connect with her. And she seemed to be busy and all that kind of stuff. And then of course we don't see her after that. We only find out about her from the phone call, which um, again, I think is clever in the way Redford chose to do that. We don't cut away to her parents we just hear them from Conrad's point of view. They're a voice on the phone and he's left alone, isolated with his grief. And we don't get to see the parents, even though we hear them sort of break down, having to admit this to her uh, former friend from the hospital. Um, But yeah, I think again, that's sort of, I don't want to say it's a red herring, but in some respects it's a red herring. Like she wasn't better as, as, as Conrad thought she was, but that's also where Dr. Berger really uh, earns his degree because he goes, no, she wasn't. She was not mm-hmm. better. And you can't think that because she went down that path that you're going to return to that path too. And that's inevitable. It isn't. And she made bad choices and you're dealing with yours in better ways. What did you, what did you guys think of it? Yeah, no, I, I think that the way that played out, the the contrast between how she dealt with it and him initially asking, like, it, it got the sense that like, weren't things simpler then when you were in the hospital 
and all you were doing is getting and i think he said like no one was no one would lie Mm -hmm. like there was this like Mm -hmm. honesty or sincerity but seeing him go through the process with burger was something that she she just I guess we're led to believe that she just never went down that path and just Because didn't she say like, oh, I started seeing someone, but then I just stopped or like. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, the, the contrast between that character and Conrad's and how he described her to Dr. Berger, I think was effective because it seemed like that was at least one like logical conclusion to her not getting the help that she needed that he was. Mm-hmm. Correct. I think that's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, and I think that, like, I think what is really effective about that performance, you know, we see her, like you mentioned, Jeff, just one scene, one scene that's like a couple minutes long. And she is very uh, evasive and doesn't really want to talk about the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, every time, like, Connie asks her multiple times, you don't miss it? You don't, like, no, nope, 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 nope. You know, like, she seems like she's moved on. She keeps talking about how busy she is. There, I think in the moment, if you're watching it for the first time, the most I think I would think of that is like, okay, she's maybe a little bit embarrassed. She's uncomfortable that maybe she had gone through that part of her life and she just doesn't want to, she doesn't want to talk about it. She does want to move on. And especially at the end where she finally has maybe a touch more sincerity and she, cause I do think she's being candid with Conrad and saying like, let's, let's have a good Christmas. Like, let's like that to me was, was sincere on her part. Like let's, let's try to move on with our lives. Like let's, we, we can have this next year be the best years of our lives. Right. I think she felt that in the moment and believed it in the moment and was in her own way trying to help Conrad because I think she could sense that he was struggling and that was as much as she could do. Yeah, to yeah. try to connect with him in that way. I don't think we know the reason that she ended up there. And it, it may have been some, you know, there, there were different circumstances that led her there in the first place as mm-hmm. compared to Conrad, which could have been what led her down that path mm-hmm. at, at the end. Mm-hmm. Which then is why it's so effective. I mean, kind of my other half of the question then, Jeff, is when Conrad gets the news that she has ended her life, his response to it, did you feel like, if if I may, and I know this is a little bit uh, leading, but if there was any kind of emotional manipulation in this movie, that that might have been the moment, because I think we all were maybe thinking the same thing with like what Conrad was about to do. I did. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, misdirect uh, mm-hmm. that um, that because he's really shook and he kind of careens into the bathroom and starts running the water and you see his wrists go under and you see those god-awful uh, vertical scars and you think, shit, he's going to do it again just like her. He's going to follow suit. But I will say this. I think that is a little bit of a, for lack of a better term, sort of movie uh, trope yes. to kind of mislead us yes. a little bit. But this is also where I give Redford credit. He doesn't hang on that very long. He kind of quickly thereafter has him grab the coat and run out. And you realize he has now gotten to the point where he knows that his reaction must be to try to help himself and not to give mm-hmm. up. And he calls mm-hmm. Berger and goes to see him and, uh, 
but yeah, it's a little bit like, I think, uh, to your point about the word manipulation, he wants the audience to think for a second, is Conrad better than she is? Is he farther along? Mm -hmm. Or is this going to be a backpedaling thing like she obviously did? And mm -hmm. the answer is no. We may think that for a moment, and that kind of gets us on the edge of our seat in a manipulative sort of way, which isn't the greatest, I grant you. Um, but I think quickly he tells us, no, even though he may have thought of that for a moment, Conrad is mm -hmm. now smart enough to know that that isn't an answer and that the answer is facing your problems and getting it out there and not being in denial. That's fair. I mean, uh, if that was made today, it would have been like 10 minutes of yes. increasingly dramatically yes. swelling music sure. with the yes. wrist spinning yes. around. You'd have like a, like a, you know, maybe not slow motion, but you'd have this like close up of his hand going to a razor, yeah. holding <laughs> it, looking at it, you know, like <laughs> all of that, like you yes. would. And, yeah. and I will say that you're right. Like it, it moves along quick enough and, you know, maybe that more so was Redford wanting to acknowledge what he knows the audience is already suspecting. It, it it really truly was just the one shot because it's kind of the same shot as the French toast where yeah. like, oh. it's so deliberate yeah. him saying, Oh, look at these scars. Right. You know, to just like kind of double down on like, is he going to do it? Um, that, that was my only thing. And, and now this isn't, this isn't a fair comparison, but it did make me think because a couple episodes ago we did fame yes. and the scene where the girl who gets told that she's getting cut from the dance program you know, that the next sequence is her at the subway with her friends. And now she's staring at an oncoming right. um, subway train. And you think and, she's going to kill herself. Exactly. And she doesn't at the very and last And it made minute. me think the same thing yeah. where I'm like, right. you didn't have to take it to that, you know? And that is a far more egregious example because then it turns into a joke. Yeah. In um, fame. Yeah. No, I, I didn't yeah. feel as strongly about no, it. No, but in it made this. me think the same way. Yeah. You know, like you didn't, you didn't have to play with audience emotion that way. Right. But it is it is not nearly of that that degree. So um, I was just curious. Just curious. No, it's more an than interesting anything. point. I mean, I think there is ways that they could have maybe made it less obvious, or certainly they avoided a lot of the traps of making it too obvious. At least they didn't have Conrad say, "No, I'm not going to do this." Right, <laughs> right, right. A lot of times you'll hear actors, mirror and, yeah. you get characters who say that, like, "Really? Is that what we say out loud? I don't know yeah. about that." Grandma but opens the would, door. What? You would also have like at the shower going, so then there'd be all the steam on the mirror, and you'd have him like wiping the steam off the mirror and looking. And he's himself, alive. Like, Look, I'm he's still alive. Yeah. You know, exactly. He's, 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 there'd uh, be all these. We've all seen way too did many. Did we movies. just direct a yeah. movie? <laughs> well, you know, well, can I just say one quick thing about yeah. direction? And again, I I, I know that uh, Martin Scorsese took forever to get his Oscar finally for The Departed when he should have gotten it for probably for um, Goodfellas at least. Um, uh, and he didn't get it for Raging Bull. And I know that a lot of people, you know, think Redford won it because, again, of the acting contingency. But I love the way he uses the Packabell canon in here. It's a piece of music that everybody's mm -hmm. heard many times in their life. And of course, had a resurrection, uh, became very popular again because of this movie. But he uses it for sort of, uh, it, even though it's this very peaceful and tranquil piece of music, 
uh, he uses it to jolt us and variations that Marvin Hamlish did on the theme to jolt us in this movie to great effect. I mean, starting off with that, you know, the intro, like here's the perfect bridge and look at the leaves. And now we're at this choir and here's Conrad singing a little bit too loud on that final note. And then he wakes up breathing. <laughs> but I mean, it's like, you, yeah, you know, it's a little bit like, wow, that's a rather <laughs> pungent noise for that soothing kind of uh, building pocketball cannon. Uh, but also during that scene where we just talked about where Conrad is running the water and looking at his scars and wondering what to do next. Uh, Redford introduces the choir again and Marvin Hamlish's version of the Pachelbel Canon there is the same chords, but it's done almost as sort of a scary choir, uh, mm-hmm. somewhat religious mm-hmm. overtones of, uh, but mourning almost like they're uh, sort of haunting ghosts in a way. And I just love the way that he takes this, takes this piece of music. It's not just some incidental music that was written to be dramatic there. He takes the music that he's established as kind of the only music in the film and done something with that. I thought that was a very clever, creative choice. And again, another reason I think Redford's direction was very artful and very considered, not just the emotional uh, intelligence uh, that he brings with how he approached the material and the characters and worked with the actors, but those kinds of cinematic choices uh, that I think really add a lot to the film as well. Absolutely agree. I'm I'm really glad that you brought that up and, you know, in complete agreement with that. I think that it was really well-placed music. I think you're right. I did I, not know that that was the title of the music. So you said it like five times and I'm like, what? Yeah, you have to go, what? 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 <laughs> I, I like your point. It's Jeff, played at Christmas because, a like, lot, Derek. It's uh yeah, and weddings. For some it is now a yeah. very yeah, very weddings. Yes, I, it's very um, very much a wedding song. <laughs> yeah, I'm very familiar with the with the tune itself, but yeah. I never knew that was the the name of it. So oh okay, okay. I just it's technically the yeah. Pachelbel Canon in D. Mm-hmm. They used to give the uh, the key a lot of times in those those kinds of years of huh. writing classical music. We actually music. have the D- or the DVD. <laughs> we have the CD. Of it. Oh, there I, you go. I have there it from go. ages ago. Um, well, before we wrap up, because this is just obviously and fully expected, a tremendous conversation with you about this film. An extraordinary conversation. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, at least it is a little bit of a departure from what we've been – well, well done. I'll just say well done. Um, <laughs> I wanted – because you, you really briefly brought up uh, Elizabeth McGovern – Jeff. And right. so, yeah, the, the other kind of major character that in, in subplot, uh, in this film that I am just wondering, you know, do you like the fact that there is this outlet? Because if there's any kind of levity in this film, it's, it's Connie getting to know her and her character individually. Right. right. And I'm just wondering, you know, does it work for you? Do you feel like the film needed to have some kind of an outlet for for Conrad in this regard. I think right. I think you're right about that. Actually, uh, totally, Anna. Because I think if not, we're we're seeing too much grief, maybe. And uh, yeah, you know, even with his friends like Joe um, and his buddies and stuff. You know, Joe says I miss him too, and you know, we were always together, and he's kind of going through his own shit too. And you know, yeah. it's always kind of Conrad's failures, like he quits swimming, or he's he gets into a fight with. Uh, the uh, Adam Baldwin character, I think his name was Kevin in it. Uh, Stillman, you're, yeah, that was it, Stillman, because they kept calling him by his last name. Um, and, you know, not really, can't be as close. It hurts him too much to be around Joe. So I think in many ways, Janine, the Elizabeth McGovern character, not only represents uh, 
an outlet for him, somebody new, somebody who doesn't know him, a fresh start, uh, but also some positivity and and mm-hmm. a, a way that he can sort of be seen moving forward at school where it's not negative. It is positive, despite the fact that they have some bad dates and stuff. But I love that. I, and you're right. It's not a film with many laughs in it, but her throwing that gutter ball was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, and... Um, you know, some of the fits and starts in their relationship. McGovern is very charming and she's kind of a goof and a little nerdy mm-hmm. at the same time too. So that helps add the levity that was needed in the film. And I think some of those scenes uh, are, are a nice balance, but also lead to the greater thing of showing that Conrad is moving on. I also think yeah. after the heroin scene where you think he's going to kill himself again, uh, try to kill himself again, he gets to Dr. Berger's office. Redford had to know intentionally that he was going to get a little bit of a, a bit of levity by that hat that he put Judd Hirsch in when he comes off the <laughs> elevator. I mean, that's a heck of a winter hat, let me tell you. And it's a funny one at that. So, you know, little levity where you can. Absolutely. And yeah, I like, I like what you, how you described her. And I don't think it's meant negatively at all. Like she is a goof. Like she's just, she says as much. Yeah. She's kind of this like silly and, and it, and it plays really authentically for me, you know, her being just this like very light teenage girl. And, you know, I love that she's silly and she, you know, she, she is so refreshing in that she, she's very quick to own up to her own participation in like misunderstandings. And, you know, I thought that that was like, like she's more mature than Beth in regards to the saying, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I laughed. I was nervous. I was, I was uncomfortable. I didn't know how to respond in the situation. Like, holy cow for a teenager to be able to, but then there's also granted they're not a child, but there's also still an innocence around being a teen where, maybe they can speak so freely because they're not thinking about, yes, they're always thinking about like kind of their peers perceptions, but there's a different way that they think about it in terms of like the way that Beth thinks about their peers and how they feel about them. So Mm -hmm. I thought that that was just like really cool that they had this character who owns up to things, but it's not even like, it's not like she did anything massively egregious in terms of like traumatizing him but like she still is like nope i was wrong and like let's go have breakfast like i just love how accepting she is of him too like she she knows what what has happened and you know the way that he has harmed himself and it doesn't she's curious but she's not she's not afraid you know like she she's still very willing to want to see what he's about and get to know him and and it is a really heartbreaking moment when, you know, Redford does a great job of these heartbreaking moments in this film where, you know, finally Conrad opens up and he's trying to explain to her, like, how he felt when he was going through the act of harming himself. Mm. And in that moment, these guys yeah. come through McDonald's, the nicest McDonald's, by the way, McDonald's. like stained glass windows. Ah, like uh, Lake Forest. Amazing. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everything's a little nicer in Lake a Forest. A little nicer. <laughs> and and actually, I that that's a great point, Jeff, because I also thought it was really interesting when Conrad comes to her home. You can see very quickly she's not from the same neighborhood. That's yeah. right. That's it's right. not a bad neighborhood, but it's not the same neighborhood. And um, I just thought that all those little touches were really, really interesting. So I I really liked her inclusion in this film. Um, initially I thought that her energy was a little off from the rest of it, but then as the film went on, I was like, oh, well, no, it makes total sense why, mm-hmm. 
why this particular character's in it. So And that quirkiness I think also keeps us off guard and Conrad off guard in a good way mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. he can't just sit and sulk. He's got a little bit of um you know, he's got to pay attention to her. He's got to mm-hmm. listen to her. She sometimes gives him a little shit like when he says uh you know, uh, going to school and she goes, no, it's Saturday. And, you know, she kind of is busting his balls a little bit there, which is funny. I also have to say one of the things that I've often told people in my capacity as a a film fan or even as a critic is, uh, how editing is very important in movies. And we tend to think of movies and editing and action films. And again, they're very key to those kind of things or thrillers and creating tension and things like that. But the editing in this movie, which was done by a guy named Jeff Canoe, who went on to direct films like Revenge of the Nerds and uh, uh, Tough Guys with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. <laughs> One of that Lancaster. Anyway, he did a great job of editing this. And you can almost see Redford sitting in the the editing suite with him talking about where they cut it because there's so many times they cut after most people would cut because he wants to get a little bit more of a reaction from somebody like Donald Sutherland's character uh, or even Elizabeth McGovern. Her last line in the movie is, Mom! You know, and, you know, he, she's taking him in for breakfast and you could just cut to most directors would probably say, or most editors would say, well, we'll cut as, you know, she's walking up to the thing with him arm in arm. And isn't that a nice, happy thing that they're moving forward with? But she's a quirky, slightly odd character. And here's this wonderful, sweet moment, kind of shattered comically by her yelling out, mom, um, we're going to have breakfast, another one for breakfast. Um I just love that those kind of edits exist in this film showing us that mm-hmm. it's not just Star Wars and James Bond and Marvel that knows how to employ editing to a very good effect to tell a story, but a, a, a picture like this where who do I look at when I'm showing somebody talking, the person talking or the person reacting? What's the most important information there? Or is it important to show somebody after they've stopped talking? What does their facial expression show us? Or gosh, didn't this scene resolve itself? Nope. She's calling out to her mom that she's proud to have this guy as a fourth for breakfast that morning. I love that. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I, I appreciate, like, I, I love that you you're bringing up all these other figures who very much contributed to the film as much as I think we're all in agreement that Redford did a really great job with the movie, like definitely that's something that we try to do in our own segment with each episode is like give acknowledgement to all the people and their talent and their skills that contribute. And definitely um, canoe on this is, is part of that. So fully agree with you. And just, in general, we we have loved this conversation with you, Jeff. <laughs> we did it. I mean, we did Yay. it. Um, <laughs> number four is in the books. And just thank you. You know, we uh, – like I mentioned at the top of our conversation, like this is a film that I know has been on your radar for a while for discussion. And I'm really glad. I'm really glad that we we did get the chance to chat about it. And I'd never seen it before, so I'm glad that this you know finally gave the opportunity mm-hmm. to to see this movie. It was it was a challenging movie, but one full yeah. of insanely incredible performances. Yep, absolutely. And also, as mentioned at the top of our episode, you are a gentleman who has many interests and talents. And so I was wondering if you just wanted to share with our listeners what you have going on and or where they can find you online. Well, certainly. Um, well, I am in the ad game. I work for Leo Burnett. Uh, that's my day job, which is a fun one. Uh, at night, I'm still writing uh, film reviews. You can read my 
critiques at theestablishingshot.org. I'm also on Rotten Tomatoes, a certified critic there. I write essays twice a month for pipelineartists.com. I have been a regular podcast as of late on Kicking the Seat, which is a podcast on YouTube that you can check out uh, where you talk about popular movies with a panel of film critics and uh, have very spirited discussions there. In fact, we're going to be talking about the new Ant-Man and Wasp movie in, I think, on the 20th. So you can hmm. check uh, YouTube for Kicking the Seat. It's fun to be a, a guest for Ian Simmons. show. He does a great job hosting that. I uh, am often a guest, host, uh, a guest on some other um, movie review programs too. Um, uh, Cinema Jaw is one that is a podcast, which is fun, as well as uh, Real Talk um, that uh, I just was guest on a couple. I'm weeks guessing R E E L. Yes, correct. Yes, That's right. There you go. But nobody's nobody. Uh, but I'm. Uh, but I. Uh, I think I've been on yours most, and uh, I'm thinking about what's that fifth movie we're going to have to talk about. Uh, <laughs> I, knew I, you I know, <laughs> I know. I'm expecting a call before August. I, I'm actually scrolling through my IMDb list of the hundred best films of the '80s, and I found so many that we could talk about that I know you have not done yet. And now that we've opened up the the door for dramatic films, uh, uh-huh. we're not doing Sophie's Choice. <laughs> oh no, we don't have to do that one. Uh, I, I do know that some of the <laughs> ones I've missed, I like. I would have loved to have talked about um, uh, the Shining and some uh, some of those that you've done with others. But sure. there's plenty of that we can find that would be of course uh, there fun are. to yeah. do. And you guys are great. You, I just love your show. I listen to it all the time, and uh, Aww, thank you, friend. Uh, it's so fun to guest on it. So thank you very much for having me. Well, we'll figure out that fifth one. Don't you worry. We'll get that done. Well, thank you. Thank you so and much. And just in the meantime, we adore you. It is always pure joy to have you on the show. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I love you guys. Jeff, we love you. Thank you. And we know we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to give one more thank you because it'll probably happen. Sure. I'm getting all the thank yous out of the way. Well, I'm very curious, Derek. I, like legitimately, is this a film that you would watch again? No. <laughs> okay. But... Yes. I will add a caveat. Sure. I am very much grateful for having like the chance and, and the reason to go through this process to have watched it once. But there are a lot of really good movies that I don't necessarily want to watch again. Mm-hmm. A lot of the movies that we talk about from the 80s have like this like comedy, nostalgia factor. This was like a really, really good movie with amazing performances. But I don't have to like really watch it again. Because it is difficult material to get through, and it's not something that I'm probably going to, like, just casually put on. Right. You know? But but like I said, I'm really grateful for having had the chance to watch it. Yeah. And I wouldn't have if not for this podcast, so. I mean, uh, not the first time that I'd seen the film. I think, though, maybe the only other time I'd seen it was in film school. Okay. But it's... It is a fantastic film. I think I'd really have to be in a very specific mood to watch it again. It's just like you were saying, like there are a lot of really excellent films out there that are just hard to revisit because of the the tone and the, I'm not the watching, topics uh, addressed. I'm not watching Requiem for a Dream again either. That's exactly one I was thinking <laughs> of. Or American <laughs> History X. Or like, Saving Private Ryan. Yes, yeah, exactly. There, there so. are plenty of them out there where they're really good, but once is enough. Call to Action. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my goodness. Um, that's, that's kind of a hard one. I think – I mean, I'm not – I'm not going to like – 
venture out a question about like home dynamics with yeah. people. But I do think it's interesting, um, you know, again, when we were talking about Timothy Hutton, the fact that like he got so much attention so earlier, so early in his career. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, for other actors that that's happened to, I mean, like some people like Tatum O'Neill, she I yeah. won really early. Um, Anna Paquin is another one who I, she might've actually, well, that was for, oh, it was for supporting. Yeah. Hmm. In any case, there's just a lot of actors out there where they get attention very, very young. And then it's really interesting to me to see where their careers go after the fact. So, I, I guess I'm just curious to know what people think of some of these performances where they happen when they're so young and if there are others that they would like to bring to our attention that maybe like we either, you know, we kind of joked a couple times about films that we can't cover because they're not 80s films. Yeah. So if there are just other performances out there that people want to bring to our attention from like very young actors. Well, as I often do, I'm going to have a ridiculous one, which is have you ever heard of a psychiatrist doing as much one-on-one -on -one counseling as this guy? <laughs> I'm not sure, but that's So, it. if you'd like to get in touch with us, <laughs> we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It's the same handle for all three, at 80s Montage Pod, and 80s is 80S. Mm. Okay. Sneak peek. Well, I think we're going to stay with the theme of, like, really heavy... <laughs> emotional movies right like we're gonna we're gonna mm. like is this like a new trend so we are pivoting a touch. oh wait what <laughs> but i did actually bring up one of the two stars of the film a moment ago in really? reference to another star of this film okay so this is happening because up to this point you know we're in season four uh-huh of the podcast, I haven't had a single person bring up this film to me yet. And what is that? It must be covered. I, it... I refuse to wait any longer. I think we've we've chosen to believe that we've received no such request because <laughs> everyone wants to defer to someone else. Like no one, like everyone's kind of afraid to be too, the too one. Too intimidated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And on top of it, you gave me this movie as a Christmas gift. Yeah. And so it's just been like on my brain, and I love this movie. It is highly problematic. We will talk about that as well. To be fair, it was on your list. Like you, it was. I, on I don't. I don't know if I would have like <laughs> on my own accord been like, you know, what's going to be perfect. I'm gonna, we're going to bring up the good and the bad. Yeah. What, what, what is it? The what pirate movie. It is the pirate movie. It is the pirate movie. I don't know if I've actually seen all of the pirate movie. You may have shown me like a few clips. I for some reason saw this movie a ton when I was a kid yeah. and it just took, and then it kind of like went out of like my, con I don't know, consciousness. It for, left your consciousness. For, I don't know. Not that I was thinking about it. I don't know how else to put that, but like it went away for a good chunk of my life. Mm. And then, um, I don't, I don't know when, but like I had seen it again and I was like, Oh my goodness. I loved this movie so much when I was a kid and I did post something about it recently, like on our social, and yeah. people seem to really love this movie. So I'm like, why is this movie not talked about more? I kind of think of it as it's like the pirate movie version of Santa Claus the movie. Sure. With the title alone. Sure. It's very on the nose. Yeah. So right. that's coming up next. And in the meantime, just thank you so much for hanging with us. We know you have 
quite a few podcast options and we appreciate you sticking with us. So we will talk to you again in two weeks time. 